2018 marks the 40th anniversary of China opening its borders to trade. Since then, it has become the world's second largest economy after the United States, and China has also assumed the title of the world's largest trading nation. But many countries believe that China has unfairly attained that status because they have not played by the rules of the global trading system. For years, Donald Trump has been hawkish about a U.S. trade war with China, citing massive trade deficits as a sign that they're ripping us off. Seven months after entering the Oval Office, President Trump initiated an investigation into China's trade practices. In the coming days, we will learn the results of that investigation. In the meantime, President Trump has also asked Beijing to reduce the trade deficit by $100 billion after it reached a record $375 billion at the end of 2017. These proposed trade actions against China come on the heels of President Trump's announcement that he will levy tariffs on steel and aluminum imports into the United States. How will Beijing respond to targeted trade actions by the United States? And will retaliation by China escalate into a trade war? Welcome to Toyota Talks Global. I'm Lila Aridia Foss, Director for International Public Policy. In this episode, we will explore potential U.S. trade actions against China, how it will affect the bilateral relationship, and what the impacts could be on Japan and the entire global trading system. Thank you for listening to the fifth episode of Toyota Talks Global, Does America First Put China Last? For today's episode, I'm delighted to speak with Bob Hormatz. Bob, you have an incredibly impressive resume, but the highlights include serving for five U.S. presidents, including Richard Nixon, whom you actually accompanied to Beijing during his fateful first trip back in 1972. You have also been the vice chairman for Goldman Sachs and served as the undersecretary of state for business affairs, as well as the deputy U.S. trade representative. And most notable for our audience today, you were a member of Toyota's International Advisory Board for 10 years. So, Bob, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So, Bob, on the exact same day that the 11 remaining members of the Trans-Pacific Partnership signed a new trade deal that did not include the United States, President Trump signs two proclamations that levied tariffs of 25% on imported steel and 10% on imported aluminum. And what's remarkable is that these tariffs were issued by the unprecedented use of an obscure trade law based on threats to national security. The 232 tariffs have faced fierce opposition from members of the president's own party, U.S. businesses, trade groups, and from the U.S.'s allies all over the world. What are your thoughts on China's response I think China is playing this so far in a very calm and reflective way. I don't think they have overreacted uh, to the tariff, in part because the Chinese would like to try to work out with us these various trade issues, and also because the so-called Section 301 cases have still yet to be decided. Those are far more significant, I think, in their eyes. From the Chinese point of view, if they consider the U.S. goes too far in pushing them, they will react, and they will probably react in a variety of ways, probably a pushback on some American companies operating in China. They have a sense of economic nationalism, of nationalism in general. They have a sense of pride. 
So that's an interesting point because in the coming weeks, the administration will announce uh, their decision related to the investigation into Section 301, which was China's trade practices. Do you think that the president sort of scratched the tariff itch with 232, or do you think that 232 was the first shot in a long, drawn-out trade war between the U.S. and China? That's a good question. It's very hard to answer. I think that by taking these actions on steel and aluminum, uh, it may well be that the president thought this was sort of a, a warning sign that he was willing to take tougher action. Whether he will now decide to do that in part will depend on the report that he gets on the whole question of trade secrets and intellectual property. And he may feel that he can take tougher action if it's an individual country rather than the sort of blanket action that he took under Section 2 on steel and aluminum. So it remains to be seen what the strategy is, that he may be talking tough and threatening, hoping he can get a negotiation. He's told the Chinese that he wants them to take action to reduce the trade surplus they have with the United States by $100 billion. Hard to know whether the president's strategy is tactical or whether he actually intends to take a series of tougher actions against the Chinese, which would almost certainly lead to a reaction. The president is under pressure from his base, which is basically quite tough on trade issues, likes the idea of more tariffs, likes the idea of tougher action against other countries. China is certainly one that this base of maybe a third of the American electorate has uh, focused on. But we shouldn't forget that the president's also taken action in the steel and aluminum cases against some of our major allies. I think he wants to give his base something that they can um, focus on, particularly before the midterm elections. So you bring up an interesting point when you reference our allies in the in the steel and aluminum tariffs, because it, in combating China's trade actions, there really is strength in numbers. And so if the U.S. goes it alone under Section 301, the Chinese can retaliate by no longer buying U.S.-made Boeing jets and only buying European-made Airbus jets or other things, just, you know, sort of replace the U.S. imports with European or other imports. So there really is an incentive for the U.S. to work with the European Union, Japan, in particular South Korea, together. However, if our allies are hit by the steel and aluminum tariffs, I can't imagine they would have any interest and sort of joining forces with us in combating China. Do you think that might be part of the negotiation of this administration in determining who's going to be ultimately exempt from the tariffs? I think he may well try to do that and say, look, you can be exempt like Canada and Mexico. Only That exemption is related to putting pressure on them with respect to the NAFTA negotiations. With the broader set of allies, it may well be he's saying, look, why don't you join us in putting pressure on countries that have excess steel production? We'll, we'll have a sort of an, an economic alliance. When the president actually entered the Oval Office, he greatly softened his approach to China. And he sort of justified by saying that he needed their assistance in providing maximum pressure against North Korea. But we just learned that the president may be meeting directly with Kim Jong-un. So if a direct channel between Washington and Pyongyang is established, will Beijing still have those cards to play? Even if he meets with Kim Jong-un, he is going to have to keep up a relationship 
with the Chinese because he's already said that China played a major role in setting this up. So he needs to understand that Chinese role is not finished, that the Chinese still have more influence on the North Koreans than any other country. So he's going to have to work with them. And that presumably would reduce his willingness to take very tough action against them, which would annoy them and cause a trade war, at least trade combat. What role would Japan play if the U.S. sought aggressive trade actions against China? Is it likely that the Trump administration would seek support from Tokyo? You're the president, you decide you're going to take tough action on China. Then there's an inclination to say, we're going to try to line up other countries to do the same thing. But it, it tends to be the case that when the United States takes action, it wants to get other countries to do something similar, which puts Japan in a very difficult position because China and Japan are important trading partners. So if you push these countries to do these kinds of things, it could actually further weaken the alliance. So the distrust of not consulting with them would be exacerbated by trying to get these countries that were not really in on the policy process in Washington. Uh, They have to face an America which is saying, you should go along with what we're doing or do something similar, which adds to the friction. How does China view the rise of Peter Navarro, who, of course, is the creator of the infamous Death by China documentary, and the apparent decline of Jared Kushner, who was Beijing's primary point person in the White House? This is a complicated issue in the sense that the Chinese find it difficult to know who the right interlocutor is. Who do they talk to? They had been dealing with a former Secretary of State now. I think the Chinese feel that they're not quite sure, A, who to talk to, and B, if they talk to someone, even at a senior level, that the president is going to back that person up or that person is speaking for the president. The Chinese don't think that the United States has a strategy, um, a consistent strategy. For good reason. Yeah, for good reason, because what does the U.S. want to do? Does the United States really want to have a confrontation with China? Is it meant to satisfy Trump's supporters? Is it designed to get China to do certain things on a geopolitical level? Is it designed to get the Chinese to make trade concessions? What is the United States trying to do? Now, a a certain level of uncertainty is inevitable on most things, but if it's sort of a calculated effort to create uncertainty, then I think it has the opposite effect, and that is countries don't really know what to do in order to resolve the problem, and they don't know that if they do something that the United States won't come back and say, oh, you did this, but now we want more. Now our policies change. Now we want uh, additional actions for you to do this and this and this, which were unforeseen. So you don't put all your cards on the table in a negotiation if you think that the other side of the negotiation is going to say, all right, we got this, now we want more, or, right. or we're going to keep, do something Keep else. moving the goalpost further out. Moving the goalpost. These are all great uncertainties. The Chinese have a, a consistent set of policies. They want to play a greater role in the Asian region, and they want to play a greater role in the global economy. So these rising trade tensions between the U.S. and China are happening at a time where Xi Jinping's power is rising. I mean, at the 19th Party Congress, he was essentially anointed. And now with the 
ending of term limits. He's he's essentially president for life. How do you think his increased confidence and support and power sort of changes his stance when it comes to responding to the U.S.? Does coming from a position of incredible power and confidence allow him to be less reactive, or does it motivate him to be even more fierce in responding in order to sort of cement his role as as a strong leader? It's not quite clear what the answer is at this point. Given the fact that he is in a very strong position, he could, as you correctly point out, say, well, I don't really need to respond to the Americans in a tough way. I can sit back and my domestic position will remain very strong. But the other side that you also point out is that now in a stronger position, he can take tougher action. He feels a greater sense of Chinese national power, that he is now at the top of the core leader of that power structure, and he will want to take uh, a position that tells the United States, look, we're not going to be pushed around. We are now in a position where we have earned the right to be heard on global, international, economic, and other issues. And they have a sense that these rules of the global system were written by Western countries, and for the most part, right after World War II. And they're now of the view that as the world changes, they're in a stronger position or should be in a stronger position to influence the direction of rules for the next two or three or four or five decades. China doesn't want to destroy the global trading order because the global trading order has many characteristics that the Chinese like. There are, there are rules, there are uh, efforts to expand trade opportunities. They're saying we would like the, the future evolution of that system to reflect the views of China and other emerging economies. And the Chinese are lining up a lot of other countries to join them in the new rules of the trading order, particularly giving a greater role to state enterprises. China's model is different from our model. So somewhere along the line, there has to be some kind of uh, consensus. And so given the challenges that we're facing, Bob, and, and since you are no stranger to our company and you served for 10 years on Toyota's International Advisory Board, what advice would you give the executives that are listening to this podcast Toyota has always been a global company with really deep knowledge of what's going on throughout the world. I think that it is going to be increasingly important for the major companies to play a leadership role in trying to spell out to leaders what kind of global order of rules on trade, on investment, on intellectual property, on a wide range of things would best serve the interests of global growth um, and global trade and the, the companies that create the jobs are in a very good position to go to leaders and say, if you really want job creation, if you really want innovation, if you really want the system to work well, we have a lot of experience in, in doing the kinds of things that enable that to happen. Well, let's hope that those leaders listen, because the one thing that is certain in this era of uncertainty is that the challenges are too great to face alone, and we really do need to work together to find solutions. But Bob, thank you so much for your time today. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. I found the information incredibly valuable, and I'm sure that our listeners did as well. So thank you again for your continued support for Toyota. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again for listening to Toyota Talks Global. This is Lila Aridia Foss, Director for International Public Policy. 
Until the next time.